left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Even though we are socially motivated, we do understand that we are taking money from investors and our first priority is to maximize profit for investors. Fundamentally, that that is always our, our first target. We believe that you can be socially responsible and actually be more profitable, especially in niche assets like these sub $100,000 assets than a bank would going through traditional, here are five steps to foreclosure type of process. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25000 but I've seen investment minimums as high as one hundred dollars or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Dan Hanford from PassiveInvesting.com, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Hello. Today, I'm pleased to have Christopher Saylor. He's the managing partner at Pikes Peak Capital, which manages high-return distressed real estate funds. Pikes Peak Capital buys and sells single-family real estate across the nation, provides a path to homeownership for low-to-moderate income individuals. They typically look for opportunities others dismiss as too difficult or too different. They've managed four funds of over $10 million in transactions in 36 states. It's a really interesting way that they invest, and I'm excited to hear more about it. So Christopher, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jim. I appreciate it. It's nice of you to be here. So the first thing I'd like to do, and this is what we do every episode, can you talk to us about your journey? How did you get into real estate? What did you do before this? 
And then specifically, how did you get into these specific types of assets? Sure. So my my professional background before getting into real estate was actually in, in structured finance in the solar industry. So completely different space. I uh, started at a company called Sunshare in 2012, which was a startup community solar company. I was employee two or three, give or take. We grew the company up to about 50, 60 staff in uh, a few different states. I had spent a lot of my time as the head of finance on Wall Street, raising capital for projects that we were working on. Uh, and, and during that time, I had originated over half a billion dollars of capital for, for various projects that we were working on. You know, it's, it's being as it's solar energy, which is infrastructure, it's easier to raise larger, larger dollar values than with single family residential real estate. I exited that company in uh, at the end of uh, 2016. Figured it was a it was a good time to kind of uh, step out into a new venture. And as I was exploring different opportunities, I ended up actually at a small balance real estate conference in Las Vegas with my dad the week after I had I had left the company. And uh, again, as I was thinking through different options, I was like, man, these guys are generating solid double digit returns. Here, I was selling projects on Wall Street for mid single digits with fairly high risk. And I was like, this is a great opportunity to raise money. I'll, I'll just you know, go out and raise some money for, uh, for, uh, for some of these strategies, execute on these strategies and generate good returns to investors and you know, act as, act as the, uh, the sponsor, the uh, uh, general partner in the middle of it. So that was how it started. I had previously been, I, I had done a few projects here and there, uh, 10 to 20 projects previously, just small balance real estate projects in Colorado Springs and Pueblo in the mid 20 teens. So I, you know, I knew, I knew real estate. I spent a lot of time rehabbing stuff kind of in my early twenties. So I was, I was experienced with single family residential real estate in general and, and had an understanding of it. So it was, uh, being as I understood kind of generally what I was doing, it kind of seemed to make sense to, to jump into that. We raised our, I, I pulled one of my other colleagues over who was also looking to, to leave the company, uh, Karin Gatos, and we, um, we formed Pikes Peak Capital then in early 2017. Our first fund was launched uh, or closed out, I should say, at the end of 2018. It was a pilot, uh, pilot fund with $4 million. We ran that for a, for a couple of years, learned a lot on <laughs> running that first fund. One of the biggest lessons learned was we had planned to outsource pretty much all of our operations to vendors. And uh, we quickly realized that that just was not cutting it. So we had a few different vendors and we had um, we had a few vendors who were managing our, our real estate and our notes and kind of our, our strategies. And what we realized was that we kept supplementing all of our vendors with additional staff internally in order to ensure that we, we were able to successfully execute on our strategy and kind of manage our assets better. And in the end, what happened was we, we effectively were supplementing so much that we realized we effectively have an entire property management sales and marketing team internally. Let's just spin out a separate company just dedicated to that. So that was one of the biggest things that we did. I think that was 20, 2019, we officially spun out our sister company called Thousand Keys. We have, um, I think we have about 10 to 15 staff on that side of the business, just managing our properties. And then uh, launched a second fund, 2020, uh, filled that out and uh, give or take two months of, of fundraising. That was a $5 million, another micro fund. And then uh, about two months ago, three months ago now, we just launched um, our, our third fund, Residential Distress Mortgage Opportunity which is a uh, uh, focused on real estate and non-performing notes. And that's a $25 million fund that we're just, just getting going with fundraising on. 
So that's a little bit of my background there. Yeah, that's a great story. I appreciate you uh, you going into detail there. And what I'd like to understand is for the first fund and, and the second fund, I guess, what kind of assets were in the fund? Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So we we started the fund based on a concept of, uh, based on a strategy of, of buying low value assets that are otherwise just devalued by banks and by by large REO asset managers. So what, what tends to happen is um, for assets below $100,000, they quickly accrue uh, carrying costs, um, you know, a lot of maintenance costs and the like. So banks who are holding some $100,000 assets, they try to sell them as quickly as possible. And what their only mechanism to sell stuff is to just decrease price. So what happens is very quickly if assets, um, if they have these assets on their books, they just will slash the price if there isn't that much interest. And then after a few months, let's say the con- let's say a property has been in and out of contract, or it just has zero interest or very little interest from a traditional buyer. What they'll do is they'll they'll take the assets out to uh, to these liquidation lists, and we're one of a, a handful of buyers on on these liquidation lists, where it's primarily sub hundred thousand dollar assets. We put in put in bids on on these assets, and um, they tell us which assets we've won. And then we have twenty four hours to fund. We typically uh, Prior to COVID, we were bidding um, a few hundred assets a, a month, reviewing a few thousand assets a month. Current environment's a lot, a lot tighter. But yeah, it's, it's kind of a funky thing where effectively they say, you've been awarded this asset and 24 hours later, you got a fund and no time for diligence or anything like that. So it's kind of a stats game of you got you to gotta know your space. You got to know, know what's going on to make sure that you actually are, are profitable and you lose money on some that you didn't, you screwed up your diligence or whatever, you lose money on some, but you make a killing on others and on balance, you're up. It's kind of the, the the core of the strategy, and as far as our disposition, kind of the other side of this, um, where we're we're buying at substantial discounts, and then uh, what we do is we uh, we turn around and resell our properties to uh, uh, to owner occupants, primarily obviously based on the price band, primarily targeting low to moderate income individuals, and really it's a um, it's kind of mission oriented on on our side where we uh, we have a desire to uh, to benefit our borrowers to create a situation where low to moderate income buyers who are traditionally locked out of financing because banks don't like to finance sub $100,000 assets or especially sub $50,000 assets. What we'll do is we'll extend financing on our properties to these low to moderate income borrowers, which provides an opportunity for them to be able to to buy a house, to access uh, the American dream of home ownership. We originate the financing on that. We then, um, and we have fully fully compliant origination on this, um, you know, Dodd-Frank, Reg Z, Tila, all that jazz. And then we, uh, we turn around and resell that paper within a few months of origination. So we'll sell that on the, on the secondary market. So that's kind of our, our core business with uh, Funds 1 and Funds 2. Just so I understand this, you're, you're buying the actual property, correct? Like a single family home, you're rehabbing it and then selling it to a homeowner. So it, it's a flip, basically. Is that accurate? Effectively, that's correct. Yeah, the one, the one key difference there is we... We're more of an acquisition play than we are a, a value add play in terms of the real estate. So we actually tend to not do much of any uh, renovation work. We do preservation and we try to make sure that the asset is in, in decent shape, but we do not do a full renovation. Our theory behind this is and we tried we tried doing some renovations in, in our first fund and it just we realized quickly why people don't do fix and flips at, you know, at, at scale with sub hundred thousand dollar assets because it's very easy for costs to get out of control or for you know if you buy something for twenty thousand dollars 
you can sink 80,000 into something and suddenly you're 100 into an asset that's worth, you know, 100,000. So you've effectively lost all your profit. So um, we tend to not do much renovation. We know uh, for a fact that our borrowers who are doing uh, the work themselves can do it for a fraction of the cost of what it costs us to do. And we're hiring national vendors who have multiple layers of management and the like, you know, between the actual work being done and us. So if a borrower, we sell the property, the borrower has the chance to do that work themselves, create that value. And we actually offer incentives too for our borrowers to, to perform work on the house. If they put work in the, into the house, we actually will, uh, and they show before and after photos and they show receipts, we'll actually knock off up to 5% of their loan value uh, in exchange for them performing work on the house. So what's the role of Thousand Keys in this? Because it seems like you're buying an asset you're not doing much to it, and then you're just selling it. What's the partnership there? Well, the Thousand Keys team manages. There's so much work on the back end. <laughs> not really sure where to start. We we're turning about uh, a few hundred properties at least every single year. So each one of these properties, these are low value assets. So each one of these properties has a lot of uh, just a lot of moving pieces um, on the acquisition side. We have uh, a couple of staff. I mean, we have three or four staff just dedicated to uh, diligence on assets, kind of doing desktop reviews of everything, managing the diligence process. So like I said, you know, we're, we're managing or we're, we're evaluating a few thousand assets on a monthly basis, and we're consistently taking lessons learned in order to better, better understand how to diligence our assets. So we have a team dedicated to that, a team dedicated to kind of onboarding then, uh, getting the assets into our system. And then we have... Uh, Probably a third of our staff, give or take, are on the sales and marketing side. Because we do sell assets to an unconventional buyer, we have to reach out to those unconventional buyers who are, did not know that they can even buy a house. So uh, we have a team dedicated to that, uh, to fielding calls, to getting them in. And then we have the loan origination side. So we have a couple of staff just dedicated to loan origination, uh, working with the borrowers, kind of getting them through that loan origination process. and. Uh, um, then we also do have a staff dedicated to cash sales. You know, if a property uh, is not in a condition to be sold to an owner financed, uh, to a finance borrower, or, you know, if we do get a, a cash offer on a deal, we'll take it. I mean, we're, our, our primary objective is to maximize uh, profitability to investors, first and foremost, but just managing those cash deals is also a lot of work. So across the board, there are many, many moving pieces, which is why we have an entire company dedicated just to, to managing all that. Oh, code, little old code violations and all that type of stuff. Oh, right. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. What's the process for evaluating whether you would buy a property and put it into your fund or not? Like I mentioned, we evaluate a few thousand assets uh, per month. So uh, we've systematized as much as we can. Uh, what a lot of that involves is we, we have a program that we created right at the very outset before, before doing anything else. The first thing we did was create a program that allows us to import a tape of, of potential acquisitions or a spreadsheet of potential acquisitions. And then it'll automatically pull various data points uh, automatically from, from the web, from Zillow, from HomeFacts, from Trulia. You know, we pull crime rates from Trulia, drug lab data from HomeFacts, a lot of miscellaneous data points kind of from all over. And then based off of the, uh, the aggregate of kind of all of these, these data points that we pull, the program automatically gives an asset a go or a no-go. You know, is this asset worth performing additional diligence on, or does this home have critical flaws? For example, are there more than five drug labs within half a mile of this house? That's a critical flaw. We, we're not interested in this asset. You know, it gets a, a no-go for that. Is this property in a FEMA flood zone? 
yes, okay, well then that's a no-go for us to, to uh, for moving forward. Once the assets, once we have that, that first kind of line of diligence uh, that we go through, we then move on to a, a secondary line of diligence, which involves some manually pulling data related to uh, sales, uh, historical sales and current, current uh, properties on the market. We look at sale, uh, sold and for sale ratios, uh, which allow us to determine is there a, uh, what's the liquidity look like in the market? What's the average days to sale based on recent sales and the like? So we analyze a lot of that. That's actually our most important, to be frank, that's our most important criteria. My perspective is fundamentally, you know, if you, if you, most real estate investors look at real estate like the equivalent of, of setting up a Mercedes-Benz dealership. And if you're setting up a Mercedes-Benz dealership, you've got to make sure that you've got the demographics, you know, that, that your area can support selling the, this, these Mercedes-Benz in this, in this community. Like it's, you know, a lot of real estate kind of has this approach of really micro-market focused. We're the Toyota Camry, the 1990s Toyota Camry of real estate. Our perspective is if you've got a real estate asset that is a habitable home, you will have buyers anywhere in the, in the United States, provided there's a liquid market and there are people there, which fortunately for us, pretty much everywhere in America, there are people. So you just have to have, you know, have a liquid market. And that's our main criteria, fundamentally. So through all that, then our staff call, actually call the counties, determine whether there's code violations or any other miscellaneous things that we're unaware of. And then at that point, that's the bulk of what we look at. At that point, we, we bid, put bids on our assets. And do you see the inside of the house before you bid? It varies. For assets that we're bidding, we're consistently changing our criteria as we learn more information. I think right now for assets that are below $20,000, we typically just do a, uh, just do a drive-by. So we do have boots on the ground, look at the exterior of the house, confirm it's standing. I mean, after buying a few burnouts, we've uh, discovered this has value of at least doing a drive-by. And then, um, so we'll confirm that it's standing. If it is above twenty dollars or $30,000, um, at that point, we will actually run an interior if possible, if it's, if it's a vacant asset. Uh, if it's an occupied asset, which we're bidding quite a bit lately, just because that's all that's on the market, we typically just do the drive-bys on those as well. Okay, interesting. So how many markets are you in? And, and when you say you have boots on the ground, are you hiring people in each of those markets? Or is it just uh, you hire someone just to do that one house? So what we do is, well, first of all, as far as geographic area, we are geographically agnostic. We will buy anywhere in the United States, provided our program spits out a, a go and says that it's a, it's a good asset to pursue. So we bought everything a few about a year ago. I think we have bought in one month an asset a half mile from Canada, up in Maine, and then uh, something pretty much right on the border in Arizona. So we'll buy anywhere in the U.S. As far as how we how we go and view all the properties, there's actually a number of services out there that will send folks out to view the property. The company that we use is called We Go Look, and they go look. <laughs> you, you contract with them, you, you tell them what you're looking for, and a few days later they'll uh, you know they'll, they'll send somebody out there and, and get photos of the place. So we've we've got a good relationship with them. We've been working with them for a couple of years, and it's. I will say that is probably, we started the business based on a statistical, purely based off statistical analysis, based on the thought that we can just analyze a desktop review of these assets and make good buys. After buying the burnouts, like I said, we determined that it was worth doing the drive-bys or boots on the ground. And I think that was one of the, one of the best expenditures of due diligence money has been that for sure. Yeah. Now with all the services, as you said, that, that do that kind of thing, it it probably drives down costs and it's, you know, you don't have to put somebody on a plane, fly them out there. You just yeah. pay someone locally. 
So you mentioned the third fund is the uh, RDMO fund. Is that the same as fund one and two, or are there some differences? I understand. Are you buying non-performing mortgages as well, or are you still just buying the the actual homes? Yeah, good question. So uh, as the name implies, residential distressed mortgage opportunity, we are purchasing uh, NPL into that fund, um, and we're also purchasing uh, purchasing real estate. Really, the biggest differentiators between our, our first two funds and this new fund are, are first of all, the, the price band. So our, our first two funds focus on the sub $100,000 band, kind of a really niche band, which again requires super high levels of attention to manage those assets. And uh, the new fund focuses on assets, give or take from $100,000 to $750,000, or uh, specifically trying to stay below luxury, kind of in a, in a local market. We're, we're buying quite a bit in Cat, uh, California right now, and it's uh, in that market, you know, various micro markets there, you're, you're seeing luxury could be uh, starting at two, three million dollars, and uh, starter homes are about a million bucks there. So the price band is the one thing, one of the things that we were differentiating from our current funds previous ones. And then the second second differentiator is acquisition source. So uh, whereas our current funds, uh, fund, Pice Capital Ones funds one and two focus on post-foreclosure REO assets exclusively, this new fund, uh, the Redmo fund, RDMO, will buy both post-foreclosure REO and then also pre-foreclosure NPL. So again, two differentiators, uh, price band, and then also buying, buying NPL and, and foreclosure. And what's NPL? Non-performing loans, non-performing mortgages. Okay, so can you discuss a little bit what you do with the non-performing mortgages and how you how you handle those? Yeah, absolutely. So with the with the non-performing mortgages, our strategy has always been to uh, uh, to really work with the borrowers whenever they're they're willing to to engage with us in order to try to seek a mutually beneficial solution. So what we always do with our uh, when we have a, a non-performing note that we'll buy is we reach out to them and we try to make contact with them and we try to figure out what's going on in their lives. Um, and it's worth noting this is all done via servicers, but we we contract with servicers who, who figure out what's going on with their lives. And in the event that um, you know someone lost their job and they're kind of getting back on their feet, they have a new job and it looks like you know they have, there's a path to them getting caught up. We'll always work with a, a loan modification or something along those lines too. Uh, to try to get that, or a forbearance or something, to, to get that borrower kind of caught back up. And then once we have that loan caught back up, then we can resell that as a, as a re-performing loan or an RPL out in the secondary market. In the event that the borrower has, you know, has lost their job, or in a lot of cases, there's borrowers who are in assets that they really shouldn't be in because they can't afford it. Uh, in those type of situations where the person really cannot afford the loan, um, we will offer cash for keys or deed in lieu type of a program where we will pay the borrower you know, to, to move out of the house if, if they're willing to take it. And that way, you know, we try to treat the people with dignity on as we kind of reclaim the asset, give, give them cash in exchange for, for deeding the property back to us. In the event that the borrower is completely unresponsive or, or hostile, at that point, we do go the legal path and we'll just go through a, a traditional foreclosure or uh, we'll just resell that, uh, resell that note into the secondary market as, as non-performing. You know, we're picking up notes in, in bulk so uh, we have the ability to kind of piecemeal the ones off that we don't really want to deal with and resell those out in the secondary market to, to smaller buyers who just want to buy one or two notes at a time uh, and let them deal with it. Okay. And so the RDMO fund is, is different, obviously, than, than the first two funds. So I think you have a fourth fund then. And does that mirror what you did on one, funds one and two? Is that the, the other new fund you have? 
Actually, these are these are the only funds that we currently have. Um, we're only fundraising for uh, um, for RDMO at the moment, and uh, that one does have. It, it is worth noting some of the strategies that we're, we're focused on in that in that new fund. We do have the um, uh, like we discussed the, the non-performing loan side. I will say the volume is really really lean on non-performing notes. I think right now we've only won one pool of like a half million dollars of assets in the last few months. We're seeing a lot of a lot of NPL is trading in the close to par, honestly, because of home price appreciation across the nation. Note buyers know that they can foreclose on assets and get their money back, you know, by reselling that REO out in the secondary market, or just reselling that REO once they reclaim it. So we're seeing a lot of a lot of things selling at or above par. So that is one strategy, though. The, the other thing on the, on the post-foreclosure side, where we're buying the majority of our assets right now, is actually in a, a really niche program called SB 1079 in California. This is a program that allows for nonprofits and nonprofit partners, nonprofit partnerships, to be buying, effectively to be buying foreclosed assets, but redeeming them post-foreclosure. So what we do is a, on, a, on a daily basis, we'll look at all the assets that foreclosed previously, and then we will review all the, all the foreclosures. We'll say you know, a certain set of assets look like they're, they're interesting to pursue. We uh, um, provide notice to the trustee that we're interested in pursuing these assets. And then 45 days later, we uh, um, effectively submit a check to the trustee for a dollar above the foreclosure price, and we're awarded that asset. And, and this is us in partnership with Southside Community Housing and Development Corporation, which is a nonprofit based out of based out of Virginia with a with a branch in California. So effectively, we we have the ability to to buy assets, redeem assets out of foreclosure. It's a really incredible program. Return profile on this is really phenomenal, like 30, 40 percent absolute returns, and we're turning stuff over in 60 to 90 days. We're really killing it in that program. We bought a few million dollars in that program to date, uh, and this is currently with you know foreclosure rates being at 10% of historical averages. So we think there's a huge opportunity coming down the pipe, you know, starting next year when foreclosures really start to pick up. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California, and we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy and it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. 
By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. Does an investor have liquidity in these funds? And, and what's the hold time or the, the length of time that you're gonna, the fund is going to run? Sure. So, um, yeah, as far as our terms go for our, for our funds, this, uh, this latest fund, Residential Distressed Mortgage Opportunity, Redmo, we're targeting a 15 to 19% IRR, uh, and we're paying out current preferred returns of, uh, of 8% on this fund. It has a five-year investment horizon, and we allow investors to redeem after two years. However, the redemption is, is just effectively redemption of, of initial contributed capital plus preferred return. To receive the full appreciation of value, uh, you would need to hold for the full five years plus liquidation, which is, let's say, at about six, six and a half years to receive all cash back. So the fund is supposed to run for five years plus liquidation. So you'll stop buying assets at some point and just start putting it into runoff, basically. And then once that's done, all capital plus whatever appreciation um, will accrue to the investors. Exactly. Exactly. And then it's self-liquidating after that five-year point where assets, you know, as, as we sell assets, we then make full distributions of both, both our basis in that asset plus any appreciation back to the investors. Okay. And how are these taxed? Is it passive income? Is there depreciation, paper loss? You know, we, most of the people listening to this are familiar with multifamily syndication investing, and this is quite different. You know, I'm sure it's that the tax implications are quite different as well. Yes. Um, so my background is, as I mentioned, in structured finance. And uh, that's one of the things that I, I really was wanted to make sure we did with this fund was to enable uh, all of our investors, everyone to invest in this fund if possible. So uh, we had a lot of IRA funds that were interested in investing uh, in us initially. So what we ended up doing in, uh, in order to ensure that that everything that we're doing does not kind of set off UBIT is um, we're, we're structured with the, the fund that investors invest in actually invest directly down into a blocker corporation. And that blocker corporation then is what actually makes the investments. So what this allows, uh, allows us to do is it, it um, blocks all of the income, uh, which typically would be considered ordinary income, blocks all that income, and then uh, um, kind of passes that back to the, to the fund via debt and distribution payments. So then uh, distributions going out to the investors are not UBIT uh, or would not be taxed via UBIT. Also, all of our leverage, uh, we are levering this latest fund. So all of our leverage is below the blocker corp level. Uh, that's another thing that typically triggers UBIT is, you know, if, if you're investing in a, in a, a multifamily deal and there's debt on that, uh, that would actually trigger UBIT. So uh, um, with us, all of that falls below the blocker corp level. So it allows us to kind of to, to, to juice returns without triggering that UBIT. So uh, again, we're pretty heavily focused on the, the UBIT issue for, for IRA investors and pensions, solo 401ks, groups along those lines. But generally, an investor would be seeing distributions um, and, and taxable income as uh, they'll be coming back as, as dividends or and uh, debt payments, interest payments. Okay, so it's taxed under probably what we call in left field investors bucket two, which is portfolio income. It's not going to be true passive income. So it will be taxed differently. It actually is passive income. Oh, it is. Okay. So because of that blocker, it actually pushes everything through as a passive investment. We take all of our, our ordinary income lock it, convert it into passive income, and then it's fully passive coming out from there. Okay, that's great. And just so everyone is on board here, UBIT is 
a tax that you can sometimes pay inside of a self-directed IRA if the self-directed IRA uses leverage or something. Because most people think anytime I invest with my IRA, there's no tax implications. But with UBIT, there is. And so your fund kind of avoids UBIT is what you're saying. That's exactly the, the case. Yep. Okay, perfect. So in the whole time you said on this fund is five to six years, correct? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. And the other fund, the uh, the funds one and two, are those still ongoing? Can you still invest in those or are those closed out and now you're just investing the, the money that you've raised for those? Those two are currently closed out. Um, our second fund, we may expand that one a little bit. We, we have the ability to, to take another $5 million into that fund. However, I think at the moment, considering how tight the markets are, uh, or considering how tight inventory is, we're probably going to sit on that for a little while before expanding that. Um, but yeah, our latest fund, we are actively fundraising on lots of opportunities, like I mentioned, in California. And uh, once the foreclosure moratoriums end and banks have an incentive to actually sell their NPL, there's going to be very significant inventory in the market, which allows us to be choosy with what we buy. I think there's around $200 billion of mortgages that will probably uh, not exit uh, forbearance gracefully <laughs> um, <laughs> after the uh, after the, the moratoriums end. So we expect about $200 billion of assets to be moving through over the next three to five years. So lots of opportunity for a small $25 million fund. Yeah, definitely. So just so I want to try to summarize this so I understand it, because I really like these assets, the way you guys do it. And I like the funds. It's it's just hard to wrap my head around it all um, a little bit. So the funds one and two, they buy distressed single family homes, reposition them and sell the assets. And then the RDMO fund does the same thing. But the, the first fund is mostly under $100,000 in value. RDMO does the same thing with assets greater than $100,000 in value. And you also buy non-performing mortgages. Does that kind of sum, sum up the two different funds? Yes, though it's probably what I should have started with. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's yeah. great. It's just, it sounds a little bit confusing, but if you break it down into those kind of, there's two different things you're doing. Um, it, it seems to make sense, at, at least to me. And I, I was looking through your, um, some of the, the pitch decks that you had, because I am an investor in, in two of your funds. And I just wanted to kind of, as I was preparing for this call, I noticed there was something called HAAS, Homeownership as a Service. Can you talk about that and what that is? Absolutely. So with our first two funds, um, as you mentioned, we, we buy the distressed real estate and then we reposition it. One of the key things about our first two funds, is not just the repositioning, but also the extending of financing on those assets. So with our, with our first two funds, um, when we extend financing to, to our borrowers, we, uh, as, a, as a socially uh, motivated uh, group of managing directors, if nothing else, um, we, uh, we really do try to ensure that our borrowers are set up for success. So we've kind of developed what, what we're terming homeownership as a service, knowing that a lot of our borrowers are used to, to renting all their lives. They're not used to, to owning a home. And uh, one thing we've seen is that a lot of borrowers, you know, they, they get into a home and a few years down the road, they're not exactly sure what, what they're doing. Life changes. You know, they, uh, they fixed up the house a bit, but suddenly, you know, their mom has cancer across the country and they need to move and they, the, the mortgage payments are too much. Whatever the case is, you know, we, we really try to be responsive to our borrowers. So what we do with the homeownership as a service model is we offer um, a few different services. First of all, I mentioned the, the equity buildup program, where if borrowers put in, um, you know, put in work into the home, provide before and after photos and receipts, we'll knock off up to 5% of the, um, uh, the unpaid principal balance off of that loan, just, you know, because it 
creates more value for us as the asset or as the, uh, the, the secured lender. So that's our first program, equity buildup. Second program is uh, financial coaching, where we uh, um, we actually offer, we pay for our borrowers to participate in financial coaching via ClearPoint, Division of Money Management International, nonprofit, uh, if they should so choose, we'll cover that. And then um, finally, our, our last option, our last uh, program that we offer is what we call our easy exit program, where if a borrower has been in, in the home and like I mentioned, life changes, something catastrophic happens, they, they need to exit, they need to leave the house for some reason. We want our borrowers, rather than to either A, bury their head in the sand, or B, just kind of peace out and leave us with an asset, and we have to spend you know months trying to track them down, figure out what's going on. We want our borrowers to, to reach out to us and be responsive uh, to us. So we offer this program where in the event that they need to leave the house, we will take the house back from them. Um, pretty much no questions asked. As long as there's no liens against the house, we'll execute a deed in lieu and um, and let them exit the house without without penalty, without foreclosure on their record or anything along those lines. So uh, th- those are really the programs that we we try to do to benefit our borrowers. That's really fantastic. I, I like the um, ability to invest in something that's socially responsible and also provides a return. So I think that's great what you're doing. Now, the next question is, of course, what's the expected return of both of your different types of funds, especially given that you're doing the, the social responsible stuff? You know, there's certain people I talk to, uh, maybe my, my dad, who's, uh, who thinks that anytime it's social responsible, you're not going to have any return. Is that correct? Well, that was a big concern that we had when we first went out to market. We actually originally pitched this as a socially oriented fund, and we received so much pushback from traditional investors that we stripped out pretty much all of our social impact language. So, uh, but our, our and and part of the reason for that too is because fundamentally, even though we are um, we are socially motivated, we do understand that you know we are taking money from investors, and our first priority is to maximize profit for investors. So uh, fundamentally, that that is always our, our first target. So like I mentioned, even our cash or our um, properties that are targeted for owner financing, if we have cash buyers on those assets, we'll take a cash deal. We need to maximize returns to our, our investors. And you know we don't get pushed around by our borrowers. We do uh, issue notices of demand if they start falling behind and the like. So fundamentally, um, we believe that you can be socially responsible and actually be more profitable, from our perspective, more profitable Especially, especially on niche assets like these sub hundred thousand dollar assets, than a bank would going through traditional, you know, here are five steps to foreclosure type of, of process. So, you know, we're uh, um, with our core funds, and actually with our, our latest fund as well, we are targeting you know mid mid team returns on all this. Our earlier funds are very low low to no leverage, um, and yet they're still hitting mid team returns. And then our uh, Redmo, our latest fund, that one is fifteen to nineteen percent target IRR. That one is levered more highly, though. We're, we're targeting about 50 to 70% leverage on, on that fund. And you said, just to reiterate, you said there's an 8% preferred return on these. So that means that every quarter or every month, you're paying out 8%, and then the rest is catch up at the end. That's exactly the case. Yeah. Our latest fund is 8% preferred return, and that yeah is paid on a quarterly basis. And then on liquidation on the back end is what, what kind of constitutes that 15 to 19% IRR. Excellent. Well, th- th- this has been great learning about this because, um, like I said, it is very different from what we typically invest in. And as I did mention, I'm I'm investing in, in two of these funds, and um, just because I, I like the socially responsible part of it, but I also like it's just a different asset. And in left field investors, 
you know, we like to diversify by different assets. And I don't have much exposure to single family homes anymore because I did when I owned them myself, but I don't like managing the, the property manager. So I sold all of those and, and invested in your funds instead. So I really like this product, both very interesting and, and I like the returns as well. Absolutely. Well, we really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate your continued support here. And um, yeah, we, it is, you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a niche unique kind of opportunity that's uh, usually people don't, don't find it or don't have access to invest in it in it otherwise. So at the end here, I usually ask if you're a podcast listener, what, a, what, a, what your favorite podcast is, uh, hopefully a real estate or financial related. And if you have something else, we can, uh, we can talk about that too. Yeah. So my, uh, I'm a bit funky in that. Well, okay. So on the economic side, I'm kind of a big picture thinker. So I love the economists money talks podcast. That's definitely my, my go-to. Beyond that, I also, I've been trying to find, they have a Babbage podcast, which is their science and technology podcast. I've been having a hard time finding that. I think it might've stopped a few few years ago. That was a great one. And then also uh, my background is actually in theology. So uh, my undergraduate was was a theology degree. And so that's kind of part of the reason for, you know, the social motivation and everything too, which is fundamentally, that's kind of what I believe that we should be doing. So there's a, a number of number of podcasts I kind of turn to. You. Uh, like Rob Bell has a podcast. Uh, Michael Gunger has a podcast. Uh, a few guys like that that I really enjoy as well. Excellent. Well, th- thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. And thank you so much for being on the on the show. If listeners wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Best way to get in touch is probably via email. Best uh, email is Christopher at ppch. That's Pikes Peak Capital Holdings. dot co, like the Colorado abbreviation. Uh, Christopher at ppch.co, or people can also call or text me at 719-659-4576. Excellent. I will put that in the show notes and thank you so much for being on. It was a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks so much, Jim. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. That was an interesting conversation with Christopher. I'm in the couple of funds, as I said, and the returns are great. So that's obviously the most important part when you're investing, but I really love the socially responsible part of this. Again, especially with the returns that I've gotten so far. They make money and they help people. That's the best of both worlds. The home ownership is a service where they offer financial counseling. They help people work out their loans. Now, one of the things I didn't really like as an active investor was evicting someone who you know lost a job, had COVID, had some kind of financial issue that maybe was, wasn't completely their fault and you're throwing them out on the streets. I, I did not like the, that aspect of being a landlord or a, a rental property investor. But investing in these funds, you still get the returns. I'm not going to invest in something that isn't giving me quality returns, but you also get to know that they are really working hard to get new people into homes, helping people who might not otherwise be able to. and they're still making money. So they're, they're doing everything you want them to do and they're doing good in the world. So I really, really like that. They're targeting IRRs in the teens in their funds. And so far from what I've seen in the first fund that I'm in that has gotten results, you know, they're, they are on track. The market isn't as good as they had thought it would be right now because of the um, foreclosure moratoriums and things like that. So some of that will change and they'll be able to find more deals and, and I expect the returns to be great. But You know, I enjoy talking to Christopher and investing with him, and I thought it was a great conversation we had on the podcast, so I appreciate him being on, and uh, we'll check in with him again in the future. 
Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.